Our topic for today is, will our grandchildren be Jewish? So let's just take a vote, then we can go home. <laughs> all those in favor of the proposition, please raise your hand. All those, all nay. I think it carries, okay? Good. In order to answer this question, we have to figure out where we're coming from and where we're going to. So I'm going to ask all of those people who are born in the USA to please stand up. All those people who got two parents who are born in the USA, remain standing. All those people who have two grandparents who are born in the USA, remain standing. Oh, you okay? You sat down. Oh, you have one grandparent born in the USA? Right? You, I ask you, all those who have two grandparents born in the USA, remain standing. What? You have two. Excellent. All those who have, you have two grandparents, but you don't have two, you're both your parents are born in the USA? Good. How many of four grandparents born in the USA remain standing? Oh, okay. The last time I did this, the only person remaining standing was a Jew by choice of the Cherokee Nation. <laughs> now, in my opinion, this reflects exactly the crisis in American Jewish life. Why do I say that? Because by 1880, there are already a quarter of a million Jews in the United States. You may know that we are the first community to have come to America. We have now been able to trace the Jews back to New Mexico from 1541. So actually, the Jews came here before the blacks and before the English. The only group that was here before the Jews, of course, was what? The Indians, because they had reservations. But were for that, if it weren't for that, we probably would have beat them all out. Okay? But actually, we are the second longest group in this country. Right? So if there's anybody who's Native American, it's whom? The Jews. Think about that. So 1541. The English didn't come into 1609, and Plymouth Rock is 1620. Okay. Nonetheless, a majority of the Jews in the 19th century came from Germany. So about 1880, there were a quarter of American, about a quarter of a million American Jews, most of them of German Jewish descent, some Spanish Portuguese, some Romanian, some Polish. By 1905, though, about half the Jews that were, were to come to the shores of these United States had already come. So if we reflected anywhere near the demographic norm of American Jewry, most of us in this room would have American-born grandparents, and some of us would even have great-grandparents who were American-born. If you look at the people in this room, almost nobody was here before 1905. Maybe one person on one side which means we reflect the realities of immigrant life in America. The closer one is to one's immigrant origins, the more the identity of birth is decisive, and less decisive is majority culture. Meaning, Greeks, Poles, uh, Italians who come to this country, generally by a third generation, no longer recall where their grandparents come from, nor do they care. Indeed, once a group is socially and economically integrated and can choose to live where it pleases, generally follows a job more than any other consideration, generally within three generations, its identity of birth disappears. Nobody can find a pilgrim unless he eats what? Quaker oats. But most groups have disappeared in America. We don't realize that. When we identify people who are specific groups, they generally be in one, two, at the very most, three generations, unless they don't look like other Americans, and therefore cannot pass, physiologically speaking, and they can be marked out. But Jews look generally like other Americans, and they can pass. And therefore, it's quite unusual that Jews are still around in America because it's such an accepting, loving culture, which destroys cultures where people come from. Let me give you a simple example. You know that song, My Country Tis of Thee? Okay, let's all sing it. My country Sweet land of liberty, of the, now listen, land where my, land of the, stop. What is that son convincing you? That your fathers were whom? The pilgrims. In other words, that song is part of American indoctrination. Right? Some people came here from New England, killed off all the Indians in New England, and we take pride in that. When in actuality, very few people are biologically related to whom? The pilgrims. Yet that song identifies our culture as what? Pilgrims. So we think we came from England. 
when how many people came here from England? Very few people. Maybe the president, the vice president, outside of that, very few. That, but the function of America is to incorporate everybody into a majority culture. So they trace their descent from England, read it? Even though very few people in America actually what? Come from England. Now, this phenomenon almost eliminates identities which are not part of a majority culture. Because once you go to high school, you take a course in world history. So what does world history do? The first chapter is ancient Sumeria and Egypt. Then the next prophet chapter frequently is the Bible. The next chapter of that is Greece and Rome. The next chapter of that is you go up to Italy and you hit what? The Renaissance and the Protestant Revolution. And then you go over to England and then you talk about the colonies and you end up where? In New England, America. And people say call that world history when really it is how the wasp came to be. Get it? That's what it is. And people buy that as world history. Could you imagine a person from China or India thinking that's what? World history, right? Only the Protestant, a wasp, could think he's the apex of humanity and think of all history is what? Moving toward his creation, right? That's amazing. But most Americans buy into that way of doing history, and the function of it is, is to eliminate distinctive identities which is not part of majority culture. Now, that's why when I emphasize where do you come from, almost the involvement of people in this room, most of you are just off the boat. That is, almost nobody in this room can trace his Jewish descent before the First World War, which means most of you came at the end tip of Jewish immigration to this country. Otherwise, you'd be able to trace your descent to the 1890s, 1880s, maybe in what, 1870s or beforehand. Jews who came here right after the Civil War, primarily German Jews, almost none of them are left to American Jewry. Those who came beforehand from the American Revolution have disappeared 100 years ago. Generally, groups disappear within three generations. Almost no group produces a fifth generation with the biological numbers which allow for cultural continuity. Now, this phenomenon was first recognized by a study done by Look Magazine way back in 1964. Look Magazine did a study called The Vanishing Prairie, a la Walt Disney, then got this brilliant idea of doing a study of the American Jewish community and they entitled it The Vanishing Jew. What did they say? They said within 50 years of 1964, there would no longer be the biological numbers which would allow for cultural continuity. Now, according to their prediction, we have about eight more years to survive in this country. How many think the American Jewish community will disappear in eight years? Now, Look Magazine made this prediction. We're still around, and the magazine itself is defunct. <laughs> Question is, do they, in light of the data which was available to them, did they make a proper prediction? Or where did they get it wrong? Now, when this study first came out, it shocked the American Jewish community for the simple reason that the 1950s was that decade of maximal Jewish affiliation. More Jews joined synagogues in the 50s than any previous decade. So it looks like everything was hunky-dory. And the 1960s was that decade of maximal Jewish acceptance. In one decade, you had Kissinger in the White House, uh, Fortis on the court, Goldberg in the UN, Kofix on the mound, and Spitz in the pool. And Isaac Besheva Singer had already been accepted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, despite the fact that he wrote in Yiddish. So he had something which sociologists say is impossible. What do sociologists say is impossible? They say minority identity exists with majority rejection. The more the majority accepts the minority, the less the minority has a reason to maintain a distinctive identity. So overwhelming American acceptance of the Jew, you would think what? The Jew would disappear. Like every other group who's been here for three or four generations, who's socially and economically integrated, who looks like the majority culture has done what? Has disappeared. Now, so when they came out with this, they asked the question, why why were people shocked? And the reason they were shocked is because not only was the 1950s the decade of maximal Jewish affiliation, but you could have a synagogue, let's say, founded in 1890 with 100 members. By 1920, let's say, have 300 members. By 1950, 600 members. And maybe by 1970, 1,000 members. And what? Boy, things look good. But if you ask, are there any members of the synagogue who are the great-grandchildren of its founders? And the answer was almost, almost always what? No. 
the great-grandchildren were no longer involved in Jewish life. The reason this took place is more Jews were coming to America than disappearing. But affiliation was almost always a first, second, and at the most, third-generation phenomenon. Therefore, Look Magazine said, in 50 years after 1964, when everybody would be third or fourth generation, if not fifth, we can predict what? The demise of the people. Now, how did Look Magazine come to this conclusion? Well, if I were to give you money, which I probably will not, to study the American Jewish community, from which you were to extrapolate from the study of one phenomena, the rest, what would you study to figure out the health of American Jewry? Would you study, for example, center affiliation, day school attendance, Jewish camps, trips to Israel, synagogue affiliation. What would you do as a study if you're projecting where we're going to be 50 years from now? So what Look Magazine did is they decided to study the American Jewish family. But not any family. Those families which had four American-born grandparents. Because they assume if you got four American-born grandparents, you're totally what? Psychologically American. So look at your affiliation patterns and then project 50 years hence when the majority of Jews will be that way and see which way they're going. Okay? Now, what they studied specifically is they looked at the American Jewish family. Why the family? Well, let's compare Christianity with Judaism because they argued the family plays the role in Judaism that the church plays in Christianity. And the church, <clears throat> without a Christianity, without a church, becomes an entity. And in Judaism, if the family catches cold, then Judaism sneezes. Now, what does it mean? What was going on? And what's the evidence? Let's look at the month of December. In the month of December, we observe the holiday of Hanukkah. You may have noticed that many of our non-Jewish neighbors do not. Those who do not, and they want to express their piety on the birthday of a Jew, on the 25th of December, where are they found? They're found in church. Now, what right, R-I-T-E, distinguishes Hanukkah from all other Jewish holidays? The lighting of Hanukkah candles. Where are they lit? They're lit in the home. Indeed, the responsibility is so much on the home that if one spouse is absent, the other can light in their stead because it's what? It's a domestic responsibility. Now, let's take the springtime, right? They, if you're, if we observe the holiday of Passover. Many of us, you notice probably that many of our non-Jewish neighbors do not, although some seem increasingly inclined to do so. But those who want to express their piety and are not found in an Easter egg hunt, where will they be found? In church. Now, what distinguishes Passover night from any other Jewish holiday? The Seder. Where is the Seder held? Not the model Seder. Where is the real Seder held? In the home. So you simply see the home plays the role in the enactment of the Jewish drama that the church plays in Christianity. So if we can study the home, we should be able to figure out what? Where Judaism is going? So they look specifically at the health of the Jewish family. What did they find out way back in 1964? First is that many young Jews of third generation were not getting married. Many of those who were getting married were not having children. <clears throat> many of those who were having children were limiting their family to one child. Now, if a constantly takes two to produce one, you'll soon end up with what? None. That is, the one-child family just delays the demographic bomb one generation. Then they notice a new phenomenon on the American Jewish scene called sequential polygamy. It seems that our forefathers used to practice simultaneous polygamy. But we, out of respect for their precedent, practice sequential polygamy. Other people call it ongoing divorce. Whatever you call it, it wreaks the same havoc with the cohesiveness of the Jewish community. Just to give you an example, I'm from Boston. And a friend of mine called Barbara Goldberg was celebrating the marriage of her daughter. And she was visited by her friend Sarah Finkelstein. And of course, I've changed the names to protect their guilt. Anyhow, Sarah comes to the wedding of Barbara and said, Mazel tov, who's your daughter marrying? And said, oh, my daughter's marrying a psychiatrist. Nonetheless, she wished her Mazel tov. <laughs> Then she says, tell me, wasn't I here about four years ago when your daughter was marrying if I'm not mistaken, a lawyer. By God, if my memory serves me correct, I was here eight years ago when your daughter married that accountant. If I remember correctly, I was here 12 years ago when your daughter married that graduate student. 
Oh, mazel tov, mazel tov. So, so much nachis and joy from one daughter. <laughs> then Look Magazine noticed a new phenomenon on the American Jewish scene. They argued that third generation's Americans in 1964 had already hit a 30% intermarriage rate. And they calculated that if you're hemorrhaging at a 30% rate, within two generations, you become anemic. Therefore, they predicted what? Our disappearance in 50 years. Now, it doesn't mean all Jews would disappear. It means you would no longer have the biological numbers to allow for cultural continuity, and you would not invest in the future, because what? You've given up. That was their prediction. Now, the question is, were they right or were they wrong? So what I want to do is explain to you what I think brought about this phenomenon, hoping that if we have some understanding of the phenomena, we may be able to control it. Otherwise, if you don't understand a social phenomenon, you're like a raft on a river. You get buffeted, you think you're in control, when in actuality, you have no, no idea where you're going. When does the problem begin? The problem begins way back at the time of Napoleon. Napoleon was the first head of state who decided that people are to be defined by their bodies and not by their souls. That means if you are born on French soil, you are what? You're a Frenchman. And we don't care, as the government is, whether you're Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, or Christian, or anything else. What? If your body is there, then Napoleon says, I can conscript you into the French army. Because you are what? French. And you can absorb a bullet as well as anybody. The result of this was a total transformation of the Jewish situation. Because up to that time, Jews have been defined more by their soul than by their body. Now, where your body was, defined who you are. So from then on in Western Europe, if you met, let's say, a Jew from England or Germany or France, and you said, what are you? He would say, well, I am French, and I happen to be Jewish. Or I am English, and I happen to be Jewish. But if you had asked him 40 years earlier, he would have said what? I am Jewish, and I happen to be French. Because the question is, what are you essentially? Where your mind is at or where your body is at? comes along Napoleon and says, mind is trumped now by body. And if your body is born on French soil, from our point of view, you are what? A French citizen. And the government interest in the public arena, in the public arena, you are what? A French citizen. Jews loved the situation, for it's the first time in Europe that they were accepted as equals, as it were, theoretically, in the public arena. The result of this was a whole transformation of Jewish life in public. The public arena is the French arena, and the private arena is Jewish. Thus, they even coined an expression which said, be a Jew at home and a Gentile in the streets. In Hebrew, it came out, even rhymed, Heve Yehudi Bevetecha, Uven Adam Betzeitecha, meaning the public realm is you mimic majority culture. And if you want to be a gentleman, you have to appropriate the language, the department, the style of what? Of a Frenchman. The result of this was almost the total elimination of public Jewish identity. The first corollary of the lack of public Jewish identity was the loss of a Jewish language. So let's say up to about say 15, early 1800s, many Jews in Western Europe spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was known as a language, just like German is a language. Both have a literature, both have a grammar. But in the late 1800s, Yiddish became more and more known as a dialect, not a language. What's the difference between a dialect and a language? A language has an army and a navy. Meaning, when a minority craves acceptance into the majority culture, it has a way of looking askance at its own contribution. So my contribution is second rate because I'm minority, therefore I speak what? A dialect. The majority does what? They speak a language. So some Jews would even crack a joke saying, if you spoke a bad Yiddish, it would come out a good German. Nobody ever said that, but the reverse people said. No. And by the way, you never mixed the languages. In French, you spoke a good French, or a good English, or a good German. They never did, for example, what happens in Bayou country. So for example, if you walked down the Champs-Élysées of Paris, you never yelled out, It's a public thing. You would say, Enchanté. To fair, voter connaissance. And if the guy answered good, then you would say what? But you do not identify the Jew in the public realm before the Jew identifies him or herself. 
And when you speak French, I said, you speak a good French. And as I mentioned, it's not like what happened in Bayou Country. Anybody ever been to Bayou Country? Anthropologists refer to Brooklyn as Bayou Country since so many of the natives go around saying, how's Bayou? <laughs> and I was recently in Brooklyn, in Borough Park, and I was walking down 13th Avenue. And there I was accosted by an elderly woman, which apparently is becoming more and more my want. And she said to me, very, she said to me, she called me Boychik. Right? Now in Yiddish you would say Yingo. But she said Boychik. Right? A guy like me. Called Boychik. And what is a Boychik? Apparently a Boychik is a combination of a young homo sapien and a young hen. The result is Boychik, which is really neither fish nor fowl. And then she said to me very respectfully, she said to me, Ir Farshteit Yiddish. Do you understand what? Yiddish. So I said, yeah, which means yes. So she said, what? Zogmir, tell me, what time is it? <laughs> now, that you can't do in Western Europe. Because in Western Europe, no Jew lived under the illusion that Jewishness is majority culture. Brooklyn, maybe yes, but not in London. Not in Manchester, not in Paris, not in Lyon, not in Frankfurt, and not in Hamburg. Never before. <clears throat> now, the result of this was not only the loss of a Jewish language, but let me tell you how significant this is. Think of people you've invited for dinner in the last five, ten years. I bet you almost everybody you've invited for dinner shared one, if not three, of the following three characteristics. That is, they all probably live within a hundred miles of where you live. Most of them, I'm sure, speak your language, which probably is English, right? <clears throat> and I imagine most of them basically share your social and economic status. Okay? Now, how many people say they live within 100 miles of where their grandparents lived when your grandparents were your age? Anybody? One person, good. Anybody person speak to their kids the language their grandparents heard from their parents? Nobody. Thirdly, how many would say you share the social economic status of your grandparents when your grandparents were your age? One. Good. Which means 95% of people in this room, among them, nobody in this room apparently, would invite their own grandparents over for dinner. <laughs> because the three things which create community are language, geography, and socioeconomic status. If those things aren't shared, then what do you share? Okay? So in Europe, this phenomenon brought about the dissolution of the Jewish community, primarily because of emergence of a new type of leader. And what I'm going to say now applies equally to the Consistoire of France, to the Verein von Juntum of, of, of Germany, and even the Board of Deputies of England. What was a function, let's say, in 1840, in Hamburg or Lyon or Manchester, of a Jewish leader. What would a Jewish leader do? For example, could he fight for Soviet Jewry? No, there was no Soviet Union. Could he fight for the cause of Israel? The Zionist movement had not begun. So what do you think Jewish leaders did for a living? The main function of a Jewish leader was to bury the canard that Jews are different. Why? Because almost every European country had a nationalistic, frequently anti-Semitic party, which argued that since Jews are different, they should not participate in full civic rights. So French said, who held this position, just like Germans don't vote on French soil, neither should Jews. They talk differently, they walk differently, and they look different. Therefore, they really are what? Different. Jews, of course, sought political and economic integration. So therefore, they have to prove that they are not different. If you have to prove you're not different, then who do you send to represent you? Those people don't look different. Therefore, you can emerge into Jewish leadership by virtue of embodying the lack of anything Jewish. Because if there's something Jewish about you, for example, you talk with your hands like I do, they clearly what? Disqualify you from representing Judaism from the point of view of civic and political integration. The result of this was, where would you find such people? Well, you find such people because they live out their lives in the public arena. 
The more you live out your life in the public arena, the more you appropriate majority cultural standards in language and dress and so on. And you look like the people you associate with. Therefore, these people emerge into Jewish leadership positions. Now, let's say you live in Hamburg, 1840, and you're a young, talented Jew. And you see two types of Jewish models. One is the Jewish leader, about which you see nothing Jewish, even though some of these people were intensely Jewish in private, but of course not in public. Because as I said before, the public stage is not the stage for the enactment of the Jewish drama. It is primarily what? A private concern in the home and at most in the synagogue, but not in public. Now, on the other hand, you can see another Jew who is highly identifiably Jewish, maybe even public, rarely economically and socially successful, and therefore, if you're a young aspiring Jew, which of the two models are you most likely to emulate? The result is the best and the brightest, thinking it was either or, left Jewish life and joined what? General culture. What is the best example of this? One of the most famous Jews at the time was a man called Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn was the most famous Jewish philosopher in the 1880s and 1890s in Germany. Indeed, in a philosophical contest, one time he actually beat out Immanuel Kant, the most famous subsequent philosopher of Europe. Moses Mendelssohn was an observant Jew. His grandson was equally famous. His name was Felix Mendelssohn. What was he famous for? He was a composer. What religion was he? Christian. In other words, the more talented you were, the more likely you were what? To convert. Because the choice was private or public, Judaism or making it. If that's the choice, what do people do? Decided to make it and leave the Jewish identity behind. The result is, in three generations, your best and brightest joined European culture, left Jewish culture, and Jews lost the desire to continue on. So most very few Jews in Europe retain their identity as Jews even before the Second World War without unless they were replenished by Eastern European immigrants who were constantly crossing the borders into Western Europe. Now, so for example, London Jewry hit an intermarriage rate about 19, 10 of 30%. Parisian Jewry also hit an intermarriage rate in 1890 of about 30%, as did, did upper-class Hungarian Jewry. So you'll say, but that can't be true. You can go to Paris today and it's full of Jews. Paris has more Jews and more kosher restaurants than any time in its history. That's true. But how many Jews in France can trace their French Jewish descent way back to the time of Napoleon? Almost none. Almost all the Jews of France come from three places. Eastern Europe, Israel, and Morocco, and Algeria. But the number of Jews who can trace their French Jewish descent has almost what? Disappeared. London today, with Manchester, has about a quarter of a million Jews. But most of the Jews in London are just like the Jews in America. They are first, second, or third generation Eastern European Jews. Okay? Now I say that because we have not yet created any place in the world five generations of Jews in which the fifth generation has enough numbers to allow for cultural continuity. This is true of South America, any place in North America, it's true of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and all of Europe. So how the question is, will America be different? America, in my opinion, actually should be worse than Europe. You know why? Because the process which I described to you took three generations, takes only one generation in America. You can come to the shores of these United States on the East Coast. By the time you get to the West Coast, nobody knows where you come from. Almost nobody has extended family. And in California, you can recreate yourself. Nobody knows where you come from. Nobody says where you come from. They said, where is it at? It's all in the present. In fact, a friend of mine, actually my brother, is a doctor in Marine County, north of San Francisco. He says the most embarrassing day is what? Father's Day. Who knows? Now, if you don't know who your father is, then clearly you know what? You don't know the legacy of your father. Meaning, that, and by the way, affiliation rates in America, Jewishly, decline as you move what? West. That is, without the extended family, people don't what? Identify. They're just part of what? They're not assimilating. They're just part of American culture. They just are. They're not moving anywhere. They just are. Okay? Now, I first realized the radical change of American culture in the 1980s. I wasn't feeling well uh, one time. Couldn't even read a book. 
decided to open television. In my city, at 11 o'clock every morning, a program came on called The Phil Donahue Show. How many of you ever watched The Phil Donahue Show? Wait a well, I used to didn't admit that I watched it either. But apparently recently, he underwent either a sexual change or a racial change, because at the same time in my city, came out as Oprah Winfrey. But I remember when he still was Phil. Anyhow, he began a whole series of programs in which people started discussing the type of intimate matters they wouldn't discuss at all in families 20 years earlier than that. I was watching a program one time, and there was a husband and a wife, and the wife starts saying something, and the husband turns to the wife and said, oh, I didn't know that. And she says, well, it was too intimate to tell you. I mean, some people can't be intimate unless, what, the three million viewers. Can we talk? So I began to realize what modern television does is totally destroy the dichotomy between the private realm and the public realm. You know, believe me, ask Gary Hart, ask Clinton, don't ask him, right? But nowadays, everything comes under what? Public scrutiny. And everything, what, goes public. So if you think about it, when the Jews first tried to integrate into Western Europe, the assumption was there are two realms, the private realm and the public realm. And let's say 50-50. So you can survive on 50% of the realms. But nowadays, the public realm is what? Maybe 90%, 95%. If Bush gets his way, it'll be 99%. I mean, even wives will be eavesdropping on their husbands. Who knows? Right? That could happen. Right? We I mean, can imagine if that could happen, right? So think about this for a moment. We live in a realm in which the public arena is almost coextensive with life. So if Judaism was relegated to the private arena, and the private arena is constantly contracting, and the public arena is constantly expanding, then what should happen to Jewish life? It should have disappeared. And therefore, if I were doing the Look Magazine study, I would not have given us 50 years, I would have given us 32, just for good measure. Now the question is, why are we still around? Well, I think there are two factors which upset the name of the game. The first is what I want to call is the Holocaust factor. But before I explain that, did you ever ask yourself the question, why is it that we Jews survived Christianity? Interesting question. No other dissenting religious group survived Christianity. They were all given two choices, convert or get killed. Only two groups survived Islam, the peoples of the book. Jews and Christians. Everybody else's what? Was slaughtered. How come the Christians did not slaughter the Jews when they slaughtered everybody else? In the Protestant Catholic Wars, many more were killed than any Jews were killed. Now, there were times of outbreak of killing of the Jews, but it was very few times. There were more exiles than there were what? Mass murders. Why? Who gets the credit? The person who gets the credit, his name is Augustine. Catholics call him St. Augustine. He lived in the 5th century. Maybe we should also call him St. Augustine. Because he articulated what came to be known as official Catholic doctrine vis-a-vis -vis the Jew. What did this doctrine say? It said, you can do anything you want to the Jew, but kill him. Do you know why? Because the Jew is the eternal witness to the veracity of Christianity. And upon the second coming, there must be somebody available to whom we can turn and say, what? I told you so. Now, if you are a lawyer or member of the Costa Nostra, and by the way, there is a difference. <laughs> you know one thing, that a dead witness isn't worth anything. So Augustine said, we must keep them alive because Jewish failure testifies to Christian success, that God who once chose the Jews has divorced them, and he's a deadbeat dad, and he's chosen whom? The Christians. Now, what did Jews learn from this? They learn from this that as long as they do not shake the boat, and they live by a philosophy called shah-shtil, don't make waves, right? Like surfers do, rather, right? As long as you do this, you do not arouse Christian envy and you will not give them the pretext to slay you. Now, don't knock it. We survived for 1,500 years. Nobody else did. What destroyed the credibility, though, of this thesis that our visibility and our vulnerability go together? See, Shashtil, the ideology is, the more you are visible, the more you what? 
draw attention to yourself and therefore become what? Subject to anti-Semitic attacks. So therefore, what should you do? Lay low. Don't rock the boat. And our visibility is connected to what? Our vulnerability. What destroyed the thesis of this? It was the Holocaust. What's the difference between Christian anti-Semitism and Nazi anti-Semitism? Christian anti-Semitism has a problem with the Jewish success, also with Jewish beliefs, but has no problem with Jewish bodies. Jewish bodies are witnesses. So under Christianity, we Jews were in a witness protection program. You don't realize this. Under Nazi anti-Semitism, it was the body of the Jew which is the source of vermin and therefore is contagious. In order to create an Aryan, an Aryan race, we must do what? Remove all Jewish bodies. So visibility and vulnerability went together under Christianity. Under Nazi anti-Semitism, not having Jews who were visibly in positions of power means that while six million died, almost what was done? Almost nothing. Now, why was nothing done? I, I last summer was on the March of the Living. I was in Auschwitz. And they have, there have big aerial pictures of pictures taken by the American Air Force. And the American Air Force was stationed in northern Italy, and they flew over Auschwitz every single day back and forth. Therefore, they photographed everything and knew everything. Never bombed anywhere within three miles of Auschwitz. Why not? So I think if you're silly, watch my language, you will say, Roosevelt was anti-Semitic. But if you're astute, you realize when you're running a war, there are only two constituencies, military and political. If you're not a military or a political constituency, you don't get a hearing. Now, in 1943, we had an outstanding moral cause. But we were not organized politically. And therefore, we didn't get what? A hearing. Nobody from 1941 to 1945, lost their elected office by not caring about what? Jewish concerns. There were no Jewish concerns. Now, what does that mean, no Jewish concerns? Well, 19, up to 1956, the American Jewish Congress was on record of, of saying there is no such thing as a Jewish vote. Now, Jews knew there was, and politicians knew there was, but as always, American Jewish leaders were only one generation behind their constituency. Why do you think the Congress took the trouble to deny a Jewish vote? You know why? Because to have a Jewish vote, there has to be Jewish interests. To have Jewish interests, they must be different in some sense. Well, if they're different, it could be the basis of what? Discrimination. They were so fearful of discrimination, they denied difference. Therefore, they denied what? Interests. Well, if you have no interests, how can you politically organize? And therefore, you know what happens? We did not, while well, six million died. Now, compare that with 1981 when Ronald Reagan decided to sell AWACS to Saudi Arabia, before he turned pro-Israel in 1982, when the 218 Marines were killed in Lebanon. At that time, he allowed the spectrum of anti-Semitism to gain currency by saying Reagan versus Begin, because the Jewish community, really from coast to coast, probably with the Holy Ghost, opposed Reagan on the selling of what? AWACS to Saudi Arabia, because with AWACS in Saudi Arabia, you can see all of Israel down to the Dimona which means two-thirds of the country are exposed to aerial surveillance. Israel was against it. APEC was against it. The whole American Jewish community. In the end, fascinating, what was the vote? The vote on this issue finally came to 52 to 48. That is remarkable. The Jews lost the vote. But nobody thought that a minority without its alliances and only five to six million strong could get what? 48 votes. And in the last two weeks, two senators finked out. One from Maine, who subsequently became Secretary of Defense, and another one from Nebraska, who subsequently died. And this is probably the best explanation. Had they voted with us, it would have been what? 50-50. Now, even if he didn't win, nobody expected what? 48 votes. This is so powerful that in the same year, Reagan submitted a billion-dollar allocation for Jordan. By the time it got to the Congress, it was whittled down to 250 million. It didn't pass. So powerful had the Jewish lobby become on a single-minded issue. Now, what happened between 1981 and 1943? Nobody's going to tell me that AWACS is worse than the Holocaust. That's absurd. So it isn't, it isn't therefore, the gravity of the case. It's the quality of Jewish organization.
What happened in between? Apparently two things happened in between. First, I think, after the Six-Day War in Israel, Holocaust consciousness started permeating American Jewish life. And one of the major messages was that visibility and vulnerability don't go together. The opposite. If you want to protect your vulnerability in a holistic democracy, you better be what? You better be visible. And if you're not visible and you perceive, you're perceived as weak, you invite anti-Semites to live out their fantasies. Therefore, the perception of power in a holistic democracy is part of what? Power. And the perception of weakness is part of weakness. The other major thing which happened, of course, is the rise of the state of Israel. Now, I'm only going to talk about Israel from the point of my thesis. Why, what makes Israel different? Well, first, what Israel does is create a public Jewish space. This is because the Zionists argued that in modernity, the only culture which survives is public culture. Private culture exists if you can ghettoize neighborhoods, or if you can prevent people from going to best colleges, or you can prevent people from marrying who they please. But you can't. So when Jews choose to live where they choose, marry who they choose, go to school where they choose, then they'll join what? Majority culture. What's the problem with the Jews? They're minorities everywhere. What's the solution? They must become majority somewhere. Where's the best place? Israel. Now, what's the result? How many of you have been to Israel? Raise your hand. How many did Israel more than once? Raise your hand. How many can recall the first time they went to Israel? Good. What do you think for most American Jews who relegate their Jewishness to the family in the synagogue, what's the most important thing for them to see when they go to Israel? You could say the wall, you could say Matsada, you could say the Diaspora Museum, you could say Yad Vashem. You know what I would say? Coca-Cola written in Hebrew. <laughs> By that I mean is most American Jews in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Jewishness was something which took place at all in the family or where? In the synagogue. But as you moved into the public realm, you left that identity behind. What happens is that many American Jews, they go to Israel, and they see the total gamut of human creativity under Jewish or Hebrew auspices. They, they begin to gather a psychological resource which allows them to become assertive in public qua Jew. It's a type of assertiveness that only majority cultures have because minority cultures are always looking over the shoulder to see if what? Who's looking at them? Let me illustrate this by one event. In 1979 was a signing of the Camp David Accords. Does anybody recall who was there in the, in the White House lawn, probably with the largest international audience, TV audience, that these three men ever had available? The President of the United States was? Jimmy Carter. The head of Egypt was? Anwar Sadat. And the head of Israel was? Menachem Begin. Does anybody recall the language they spoke in front of this large international audience? Anwar Sadat spoke in impeccable English. Even Jimmy Carter made a similar effort. <laughs> What did Begin do? Nobody recalls? Begin opened up the Tanakh, and from the Hebrew Bible, he read the Psalm Shir HaMalot in Hebrew, and then said, if you want to know what I just said, read it in your local Bible. Now, I can't imagine an American Jewish leader doing that. Some Jewish leaders would have the gumption to read it quickly in Hebrew, but then repeat it very slowly in a deep stentorian voice in English. Because part of being a minority culture is always wanting to appear good in the eyes of the majority culture. How many Jews couldn't stand when they saw Shamir on Nightline? Because he spoke with a Polish accent. Get Benjamin Netanyahu. When he went to MIT, they still spoke English. And let him be articulate. Let him represent me. i got to tell you something. When Menachem Begin spoke Hebrew and he did not translate it, I was ashamed. And I'm so embarrassed to tell you how ashamed I was then that I'm not going to repeat it. And this is despite the fact that I took one to one to three years of ethnotherapy to reduce myself from a minority complex. <laughs> now, I didn't realize how deep my shame was until three years afterwards when I heard the crown prince of Saudi Arabia in an interview on TV. His name was Fad, subsequently became king. The interview was totally conducted in Arabic. Right? Despite the fact that Fad went to Princeton, which in my day still spoke English. Now I ask you, why Arabic is a Semitic language, correct? 
Hebrew is a Semitic language. So why did Fad's Arabic not bother me and Begin's Hebrew did bother me? After all, I'm not anti-Semitic. How do you explain this? Well, it shows you that when you're part of a minority, right, you always look what? How the majority perceives you. But Begin represents nothing more than the extreme expression of the Zionist enterprise. The Zionist enterprise is based on two principles. Principle number one, we do not allow the Gentile world to determine our political destiny. Therefore what? The need for a state. Principle number two, we do not allow the Gentile world to determine our psychological destiny. Therefore we neither look to the right nor to the left, groveling for approval. And if Gorbachev can speak Russian and Mitterrand can speak French, then clearly Begin can do what? Speak Hebrew. And if it bothers American Jews, let them go to their shrinks. Most of them are Jewish. They'll make a contribution to the campaign, and everybody will call it quits. Okay, now, the result of this is the Israeli experience helped many American Jews overcome this private-public dichotomy. It gave them the courage to be, the capacity to assert themselves in public, even when they're in America. The Holocaust taught them that visibility and vulnerability don't go together. And the opposite, if you want to protect your vulnerability, you better be in a pluralistic democracy, what? Visible. The result of this has been a flourishing of public Jewish life. Let me give you an example. If you lived in Los Angeles 50 years ago, and you went to a meal sponsored by the Jewish Federation, the meal was guaranteed to be glat treif. Even though many people who ate at that meal came from kosher homes. But what's the assumption? Kosher is what you do what? That's private. But as you move into the public realm, you appropriate majority cultural standards. It's like a person would say to you, oh, you know that commandment, thou shall not commit adultery? Oh, yeah, I observe that in the home. Okay. But nowadays, you can go to Los Angeles in the 1980s to 1990s to a federation meal, and the meal is what? Glot kosher. Even though... Most people come to the meals, don't have kosher homes. In fact, I was talking to a federation board one time. We were in a hotel, and we were eating lunch, and I had the temerity, it was a kosher lunch, I had the temerity to ask people, does anybody in this room have a kosher home? Not a single pe person raised his hand. So I said, you mean you only kosher out? They said, yes. In fact, I know people only keep Shabbos at international Jewish conventions, right? In fact, one time in 1988, I was at a demonstration in front of the Isaiah Wall on Soviet Jewry, and I was standing next to a Federation president. And CBS and ABC had their cameras focused on us. He took my talis and yarmulke and shuckled like he comes to Williamsburg. In other words, we have now achieved a public persona which exceeds private Jewish life. Think about this. It's a fascinating phenomenon. I'll give you one simple example. Ever hear of a day school? Right? What do we Jews call day schools 50 years ago? No. They were all called parochial schools. All right? Because they belonged to what? The lunatic scissors fringe of American Judaism. Right? But now they're called what? Day schools. It's the same school. Why were they one time called parochial and now they're called day? You know why? Because they've been mainstreamed. Now, most of us think we speak English. If you talk to a Catholic and you say day, what's the opposite of day? Night. But day school is the opposite of afternoon school. We think it's English, but really it's what? English. Now, what happens here? In day schools, people were scared to death of 30, 40 years ago. You know why? Because a day school can make you what? Too Jewish. Now, what does the phrase too Jewish mean? It almost never describes a reality out there but does describe an insecurity inside. Because if you're a minority culture craving acceptance, you want to be perceived as what? A member of the majority culture. Okay? The last thing you want to do. So you can always perceive minorities because they believe that all the majorities have nothing better to do than think about them. <laughs> Let me tell you something. But if Gentiles thought about Jews as often as Jews think they're thinking about them, they go Meshuggah. <laughs> Most Gentiles have better things to do at breakfast than do what? Think about Jews. But I had a grandmother, whenever she saw a column on anything Jewish on the front page, she knew exactly what the Goyim would think. She didn't know any of them, but she knew exactly how their mind worked. Right? Because part of being a minority culture is perceiving the majority. It's all one dimension. 
when Gentiles come in varieties more than Haggadahs. As soon as you know them. There are all types of Gentiles out there. And most of them, what? Don't think about Jews, nor eat them for breakfast. they got other things to do with their life. But a minority is always looking to the right and looking to the left. And that does what? Totally cramps his capacity to express himself. This has almost been a revolution in the last 20 years. And you can see in the number of Jews who are publicly Jews and socially and economically integrated. Think of the number of people in Hollywood who changed their names 50, 60 years ago. Anybody growing up in the 50s, did they think Kirk Douglas was Jewish? Nobody thought so at all. In fact, the majority of actors changed their names. Many political columnists, never who were Jewish, did not write about the Holocaust. Many of your super wealthy people disappeared from what? American Jewish life. In other words, the more visible they were in American life, the more they what? Detached themselves from the Judaism. Now we experience a revolution. Think of people in Hollywood. You can name large numbers of people who visibly identify what? As Jewish. We have 31 people now in Congress. In fact, there are some states, if you're not female and Jewish, you can't be elected to the Senate. <laughs> right? Just think about that. I mean, it's almost like a boxer rebellion in South America. Okay? And used to be, if you were super wealthy, you did what? You joined the Johnny culture. Now you have billionaires who are identifiably what? Not only Jewish, but are foundations for Jewish education. In other words, we've remarkably changed the thing in the last 20 years. So let me come to the conclusion. I began my whole lecture by arguing the way the family goes is ultimately the way what? Judaism goes. But I guarantee you the family cannot survive in American Judaism without a strong public culture. Families are no longer isolated. Whatever public culture does, the family will go. Therefore, what we need is a public culture, very strong, and we cannot live in a reality where young Jews believe they have to choose between American success and a Jewish identity. And therefore, they need a large numbers of examples of people who have succeeded as American who remain what? Visibly Jewish. Insofar as that, they will contribute to both. And without their talents, we won't survive. But more and more are doing it. And we're creating a stronger and stronger public Jewish culture. In fact, many Jews, through involvement in public Jewish culture, get committed to what? Private Jewish life. Now our question is, can we combine the public culture with its strength and, 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 and protection with the content and values of private Jewish life, create an amalgamation of the two, and if we were, the possibility of creating a renaissance of Jewish life on the shores of these United States, in my opinion, exists. Thank you very much. Yeah, put it. Questions. By the way, if you ask, a, you can make a question or make a comment, but make sure the comment is shorter than the lecture itself. <laughs>